Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. So today I come with a very difficult question. The goodness of God. Is he really good? The reason why this topic has been on my mind is because recently from a very well-meaning skeptic, I heard this question. If you have a being that is not actually capable of evil, can you call that being good? Of course, this applies pretty broadly to human beings, but it also comes or applies to the question of God and his goodness. If God is not, in fact, capable of evil, can he be considered good at all? Do you, in fact, need to have free will to at least have the capacity to do evil in order to be considered good? Now, of course, I could approach this immediately from the Christian perspective and try to defend God and all that sort of thing, but that's not what I'm going to do. One of my teachers, who is not a Christian, but is a very good man and um, friendly with Christianity and Christians, he advocates for what is considered the, or what he calls the steel man argument. We've all heard of the straw man. You set up an example or a supposed example of your opponent's argument and really putting it together in the weakest possible form usually completely missing the point of the opponent's argument in the first place, and then just knocking that down as if it's just, you know, some little anthill that you can take out with a single kick, and then, of course, pull your hand away before the ants start coming out and biting you. And that really is a cowardly way of dealing with an argument. On the other hand, if you set up the strongest version of your opponent's argument, and, you know, that opponent could be vicious and aggressive or might be well-meaning, which thankfully is the case here. And obviously I'm not talking with this person, but it still is an oppositional argument to the question of the goodness of God, and I want to face it. I want to face it head-on. If you set up a steel man argument, if you set it up in the strongest possible context, maybe even adding to it, which I intend to do, and then give a counter-argument, that is far more effective. So, goodness of God. Can God be considered good if he's not in fact capable of evil? Well, first way I want to approach that is simply to point out that's not, a very, that's not even a very strong way to present the argument. You could add so much more to that premise. God, according to a Christian, is only capable of good, etc., etc. I'll get into more of what we really mean by that later. But let's first ask the question, is God, in fact, capable of evil? Depending on who you're talking to, depending on the perspective that you're coming from, God could, in fact, be considered evil and justifiably so. What do I mean by that? Take, for example, if you were an Egyptian living in the time of the exodus of Israel. Now, as I've heard from some very sharp friends who know some of the facts about these times, the plagues that God sent upon Egypt were specifically designed to counter the, quote, divinity of the Egyptian gods. And as many of us know, I don't know if it was the case at that particular time, but Pharaoh of Egypt was himself often considered a god. So when God himself started opposing Egypt and sending all of these plagues, he was contradicting their deity gods, i.e. the, you know, not coming in human form in the sense of Pharaoh gods, and Pharaoh himself. If you were an Egyptian, don't wouldn't you think that that god was doing not just evil, but the lowest sort of evil? He's dismantling the very structure by which you live, the very structure by which you think 
any form of goodness or rightness or order comes. He's taking apart your life. It's hard for Westerners to really appreciate because we don't live in a society that still, in the same sense, really has the same kind of worldview as the ancient Egyptians. You'd have to be somebody who grew up in India or um, certain areas of Africa where they still believe in, you know, mystical deities in the same way that Egypt did. Now, on the other hand, we do have our pet deities in America, but they tend to be a bit more subtle. They're very much the same, by the way, but subtle. Let me buttress that a little bit. The ways that we live our lifestyles in lieu of that which we actually worship as Americans, as Westerners, actually very much aligns with the pagan mystical deities of old and of modern times. That bears some more research. I'm not going to go into it a great deal, but just to kind of give that a little bit more of a body, that statement. Now, let's dig a little bit further. Let's look at how God dealt with Israel themselves. In the Exodus itself, not within Egypt, but particularly after Egypt, God is taking out Israelites right, left, up, and down. And he's not even taking them out for killing people, killing each other. He takes them out for setting up a golden calf. Now, from the human perspective, that's a pretty minor infraction. They slaughter each other and he does nothing. Now, of course, to be honest, when they're slaughtering each other, they're usually doing it because God actually wanted them to. But that too, if you're just looking at that from an outside perspective, and I'm hoping some of my listeners are those very people, that doesn't look like a very good God. Several times God is sending plagues. God is sending his very own people with swords and spears or whatever it is they might have had. He, he even opens up the freaking earth to swallow up a group of people that are trying to oppose Aaron the, Aaron the priest, Moses' brother. See, when God and Jesus alike are talking about the fact that the Godhead wants to set up a kingdom of his own, that is either in alignment with your interests, or it's not in alignment. Let's take, for example, a war between two nations, which if you're listening to this, you know, in close timing with when it's being recorded, there's a current war going on between Russia and Ukraine. Okay, who's evil in that war? Well, that depends on your alignment. It doesn't depend on actual questions of morality. Let's be quite genuine about this fact. Both parties in this conflict are doing atrocious things. I don't mean that there's actual evil intent necessarily, but if we're just to judge their actions on the basis of their actions, they're doing atrocious evil things. People are being killed. With explosions, with bullets. This is not something that we, particularly as Christians, approve of in general. But if you're a Ukrainian or more aligned with Ukrainian interests, you're going to be inclined to believe that the Russians are the evil people. If, on the other hand, you are aligned with Russia or you are a Russian, of course, to be quite honest, I've heard that Russians, and I'm not too surprised by this, are rather skeptical and critical of what Putin is doing. But let's just, you know, go with the side of you are aligned with Russian interests you're probably going to think the Ukrainians are the evil people. Now, I'm not saying that every one of my listeners is of one, of, uh, one or other of those mindsets. I know I'm not. But if you are somebody of that particular interest, what you think of as good, is good and evil, kind of going back to the Egyptians and their gods and how God opposed them, what you're going to consider good and evil is going to be based on the good of your interests, your people, your culture, your nation. 
And whoever tries to oppose, and especially somebody who tries to destroy that, is understandably going to be considered evil. So going back to how I opened up this point, when God and Jesus are talking about instituting the kingdom of heaven, that's either going to be aligned with your interests or it's going to be directly opposed to your interests. Take a look at the Pharisees. I know it's not exactly a Christian tendency to try to empathize with a Pharisee, but let's go there. If you were a Pharisee and you really were sold out to the idea that all of these oral traditions, all of these laws were how you were good, how you prove that you were a good person, and you didn't see the hypocrisy in that, you actually bought that, that line. And then Jesus comes along and in many ways violently, vehemently opposes your entire perspective. Even, by the way, when Jesus made mud, or clay rather, out of the dirt and rubbed it in that guy's eyes, that was directly opposed to the oral tradition of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Specifically, it was considered work if even by accident you formed clay on Sabbath, because clay, of course, was used to make bricks. And if you were making bricks, that's work. And work is a sin on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. Jesus was considered a bad person by the Pharisees from their perspective for a very understandable reason. He was doing violence to what they considered good. Now, I really want people to get this. First of all, I know there's going to be a number of Christians who are going to come at me going, oh, oh, wait, most of what you're talking about so far has to do with God of the Old Testament. He's killing you know, for people of foreign nations. He, he's even killing Israelites. But we have Jesus now, and things have changed. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. You can't go there. And here's why. Jesus, first of all, never said a thing in negativity towards what God the Father did in the Old Testament. He told us some addendums to some of the things that were commonly believed at the time, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth kind of stuff. And he's like, no, what you should be doing, you people, is loving your enemies and so on. Yeah, he taught us to get closer to the real heart of the law. But what he said about the Father, first of all, whatever I do, I first see him doing. I know that's not an exact quotation. One of the things he most definitely said is, I and the Father are one. He's talking about God of the Old Testament. No addendums, no changes. He's talking about the same God who ordered the destruction of Canaan and all the people often women and children with them. And in many cases, specifically gave the Israelites permission to loot, which included virgin women. Read it. Jesus doesn't say a thing against any of that. He doesn't present himself as a change to the character of God. That's what a lot of Christians actually believe, and it's complete BS. No. God, or sorry, Jesus is not a showing of the change of the very character of God, or he changes, and therefore that contradicts some most quoted scriptures, such as that God is perfect and unchanging. What does Jesus show us that is so very different as we see it in comparison to God the Father? Jesus was a man. He was the example of the character of God existing in a human body, a citizen of Rome at the time, and of Israel. He showed us what the character of God is like when put within those restrictions. Many of us know, if we're Christians, we know what Paul said about Christ. That he laid down his glory. In his life as man, as a man. He showed us the character of God within restrictions. Which is an important thing to get, because if you understand this part of Jesus' character, you can see that he is, therefore, 
the perfect example of what we should be. He himself said, you will do greater things than these. We like to think of that as miracles and that sort of a thing. How about just character? How about just behavior in a society? One of the things that frustrated people about Jesus the most is how good a citizen of Rome he was. Not just of Israel. In fact, he got under Israel's skin more than Rome. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, he seemed to have a particular affection for centurions. They were expecting Jesus to usurp the Roman authority. He fell under it. By which I don't mean he didn't consider himself as God above Rome. What I mean is, as a man, he was an exemplary citizen of Rome. Or, well, not exactly citizen, because he had to do specific things to get that, but whatever the case, a captive Israelite of Rome. He never opposed it. In fact, he got along with Rome in some ways better than the people of Israel. He shows us what the character of God is like within a set limitation, or sets of limitations. But as far as God and the, quote, atrocities or you know, horrible stories that we read of in the Old Testament, he doesn't say a word against it, and he says that I and the Father are one. You don't get to take Jesus and say that he's some addendum, he's some change on the character of God the Father. No. He and the Father are one, and he never said a thing against it. Now, what I really want to get through here is that not just from the perspective of somebody on the outside, but from the perspectives of many on the inside, Christians, we can understand and even wrestle with the fact that sometimes God doesn't look very good at all. Take, for example, those who you know, want to believe that God is all about healing and prosperity. And he'll do all these wonderful things if you just believe. Now, I'm not against these perspectives and paradigms as a whole. I think that God does want prosperous people. He does want people to be healed and well. I believe that. However, I do not believe that it's some universal blanket sweep. If you follow under a certain set of bullet points, you could basically force God's hand. That basically treats God as a vending machine rather than an individual personality with a free will who can make his own decisions. It's a way of believing that we can control God, but leaving that aside for the moment. If you buy into that paradigm, eventually, hopefully, honestly, you will wake up and start to realize that, you know, this person over here, who had a pretty bad situation, but not all that bad in general, he was healed, but this woman over here who suffered a horrible car crash brain damage, and continues to be largely disabled to this day, and has a character that has been chiseled and focused, and has turned into an exemplary human being, still suffers with ongoing chronic pain. Many of the issues that she had since the very beginning of the situation, and she's never been healed miraculously of anything. If you allow yourself to start looking at the world in a more unbiased way and admit the simple fact that some people get this and some people get that, some people get miraculous things, some people get amazing success and prosperity and others fight and fight and struggle and struggle and pray and pray and nothing ever seems to happen. Many of them reach their very graves in that condition. Just look up Anna Johnston Flint. Read about her. If you really want to, as a Christian, start, see to God, start seeing God through the eyes of a skeptic, dig your nose into some of those things and start asking the question, how can God justify these different behaviors, these different responses to people? 
how dare God, if you really want to be honest with your feelings, differentiate, not just between people who've gone through similar situations, but in some cases, it seems like the people with greater character continue to suffer more, and the people with less character suffer less. That doesn't seem right, now, does it? Now, there's a number of reasons why I'm going through all of these illustrations. You probably heard that one of the best ways to get a dog to not use the restroom in your house is to rub their noses in, noses in it. Not sure that I specifically approve of that, but it's a good analogy for what I'm doing right here. A lot of Christians don't treat God as God. They treat him as a sacred cow. What I mean by that is whenever somebody at least seems to be opposing the Christian perspective of God, we don't actually engage in the argument. We start trying to defend God. That's not how we argue. That's not how we actually bring people to start to understand the truth. What you first need to do is agree with the other person. What you first need to do is show that you are willing to rub your face in the shit. Why is that important? Because what people are looking for is not a good argument. They're looking for honesty. If you can't see things from their perspective, and in that sense, I don't mean agree with them as in accept their perspective, fully accept their arguments. What I mean is allow yourself to, again, steel man, allow yourself to really see things from their vantage point. You need to be able to see how you yourself, and with the additional knowledge you have, because hopefully you know the scriptures, you need to see for yourself how you could view God as evil, as bad. If you're really going to engage in this argument, that's what I have been doing. How could I actually see for myself, believe that God is bad? If you start an argument about God or the Bible... In that kind of a perspective, one of the first things that you're going to do is take down, take down, or sorry, not take down, but prevent defenses from rising in the person you're talking to. Because now you've come in on their side. You've started to see things from their perspective. And by the way, one of the things that I find particularly pernicious, particularly damaging when it comes to all the healing and prosperity gospel stuff, is that that's a really great way to not just turn people away eventually from your paradigm, but from Christianity and God as a whole. Now, a little caveat, I don't think that they're actually walking away from God. They're walking away from a false version of God set up by people who are not sharing good theology, in my opinion. But when you portray the, quote, goodness of God as only existing, when he's healing everybody, when everybody who follows God is prosperous and wealthy, and you start looking at reality and seeing that it does not align with that, the only place you can go is start to question God and theology as a whole, because that's what you've been taught to believe is the reality. It's extremely dangerous. And all of this, everything that I've been raising so far, is the question of what do Christians really mean by the goodness of God? Because once again, if we go back, depending on your alignments, depending on your loyalties and your interests, you might consider something evil that is not evil at all. You might consider something to be good that is not good at all. And I don't mean good when it's evil or evil when it's good, necessarily. It could just be neutral. It could just be natural. But you're going to call it good or evil based on your alignments, not because it's rational. And if we're going to be honest and genuine in our approach to arguments and differences of perspective, we need to be less blind than that and less biased. So now, let me start working things back 
and dealing with these arguments one by one. And I will end with where I began. So first of all, let's deal with the question of the prosperity and healing paradigms within Christianity. Where does it go wrong? Once again, as I just said a moment ago, this is about the question of what is really meant by the goodness of God. And what I'll be addressing here is wraps in also with the question of why God allows slaughter and bloodshed. Why, by the way, does God not seem to get very much involved? I mean, yes, I know that very recently we had the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but why does he not seem to get very involved in the matter of abortion? Why doesn't he seem to disempower those who fight for abortion and empower those who fight for it and miraculously bring the political system to defend the lives of innocent, unborn children? These are questions that we genuinely wrestle with if we're honest with ourselves, do we not? But a lot of us don't want to admit it in public because we think it's going to erode this image that we've built up of the goodness of God. Why does God seem to willy-nilly allow horrible things to happen? I'll give another example. Those of us who have read the book of Judges and understand the book of Ju- or know the stories of the book of Judges know that some of the most challenging questions about what God allows are in that book specifically. It's a trip. There is one story in there, and I'll just mention this one. There's a few others that bring up some very good and difficult questions. But one of them has to do with the story of a man who is heading into the territory of the tribe of Benjamin to recover his concubine. And he succeeds. And as he's heading back, some Benjaminites come to the house where he's staying and demand to commit essentially sodomy, homosexual acts with this man. And the host of the household is arguing with them, saying, no, don't do this thing. And then the guest, the man who is coming back with his concubine, trying to go back to his tribe and his area, sends out the concubine to basically sate their lust. Which they do. And by morning, she's dead. What does this man do? He cuts her in 12 pieces and sends those pieces throughout the nation. Understandably, that brings things to a very quick boil. Many of us think that the George Floyd incident is unique because it just sent an entire nation in an uproar in a matter of days. Um, You should read this story. Yeah, it might have taken a few or days, but it did the trick. And the only specific part of this atrocious story where God actually makes a comment is whether or a direct comment is whether or not the rest of the Israelites should continue to slaughter the Benjaminites. They almost take out an entire tribe of Israel by the end of this story. That's God's comment. Think that's not a challenge to how we see the goodness of God? He doesn't reprimand the guy for cutting a woman's corpse into 12 pieces. He doesn't seem to think that the slaughter of the Benjaminites is a bad thing. This is his own people. This is his own tribe. One of the tribes of the nation of Israel with whom he's made a covenant. God doesn't say stop. He says, no, you should do it this way. You should kill them this way. And by the way, the the other tribes of Israel were dying too. The Benjaminites fought fought hard and well. The modern day years, a lot of this stinks. And I understand it. I'm a modern person myself. I grew up with a lot of these same perspectives. What does the goodness of God really mean? Let me bring up C.S. Lewis here for a moment. 
he brings up two different sorts of life. There's bios, and he's, he's kind of using these words, he's kind of coining these terms. Bios, i.e. biological life, our living and breathing, eating and pooping and drinking and so on, right? Biological life. And then there is what he calls zoe. By the way, zoe is a great word. It's basically the uh, Greek version of the word Eve, the name of the first woman. C.S. Lewis uses it to bring the connotation of spiritual life. If we're going to understand the goodness of God, we have to essentially do for God what I was just trying, hopefully guiding us to do with perspectives outside of Christianity. We need to see things from God's perspective. We need to empathize with God. Just as we hopefully empathize with skeptics and people who question or even rant and rave about how God is not good. So if we bring up this question in lieu of God's perspective, is he interested in bios or is he interested in Zoe? Biological life or spiritual life? When we read the scriptures, we can see that pretty straight. Let me take this to a more general perspective, philosophical perspective on God. God is the source of all life. God is the source of being in general. It's for reasons like this that it's fairly easy to fall into the error of thinking of God as just a force. Some ectoplasmic thing in the universe that fills all of reality like some Hindu beliefs. Or old pagan beliefs. Europe. But that error aside, God is, according to a Christian, and I believe this, the source of all being, the source of all life. If you are the designer of some device, let's say a dumbwaiter, If you were the inventor of a dumbwaiter and you were talking to a child who's starting to grow up and be unable to fit in the dumbwaiter, because of course, what does a child do with a dumbwaiter? They want to ride it. It's a cool little elevator, right? It's a kid's elevator. They're starting to grow up. They can't fit in it anymore. They write you a letter. The child writes you a letter and says, why did you make this thing so small? I loved writing it, and now I can't anymore because I'm seven or whatever. Some seven-year-olds can get really tall. I have a niece who got very tall at seven. If they haven't been talked to by their parents about this or somebody else who understands the actual purpose of a dumbwaiter, the child's perspective would be pretty understandable now, wouldn't it? And you, as the very inventor of the dumbwaiter, who knows how they got your address, but let's just say that they got it and they sent you a letter. You would have to tell them, well, that's that was never the purpose of the dumbwaiter in the first place. The purpose of the dumbwaiter is to carry objects up and down stairs conveniently. And without having to carry it upstairs and huff and puff. Now you first have to empathize with the child, who, you know, understandably is a bit vexed at the fact that they can't have, they can't take these rights ever again in this fun little device. But if the child is to understand your perspective, they have to understand where you were coming from in the first place what you actually wanted to do in inventing a dumbwaiter. Now the question is, can we give this same kind of empathy and understanding to God? 
if he's more interested in spiritual life, if that is in fact his goal, then he knows if he heals this person and doesn't heal that person, which activity is going to lead to an increase of spiritual life? For some people, and we've experienced this if we've ever been involved in charity, if we've ever given of our time or resources to somebody who was, quote, in need, we know very well what it is like to give of our efforts, give of our resources, solve a temporary problem, and that person persists in more long-lasting error. And it's extremely painful, especially if you gave of whatever it was that you gave with the hope specifically in mind that they would reform. And they just don't. Now, we're just talking about morality and people changing in a practical sense. We can't really affect people's spiritual life directly. But God can. He knows very well that for some people, if he gave them prosperity, if he gave, if he gave them riches, if he gave them success, it would hurt their spiritual life. Not help it. Very opposite. If he heals some people, it would hurt their spiritual life. It was Jesus himself that pointed out through his story of Lazarus and the rich man that if the law and the prophets were not enough, a man rising from the dead would not be enough to convince some people. Jesus never put a great deal of emphasis on his miracles. In some cases, he did use it as a direct argument, but he didn't make this big deal out of them. In fact, a lot of people were frustrated about how hard it was to find him. Sometimes, because they wanted the miracles, they wanted the miracles. Jesus was very reasonable and understood the hearts of men and women. He knew that in many cases it wasn't going to help. Right after the feeding of the 5,000, they're not following me because they want to. I can't remember exactly how, it, how he words it, so I won't try to quote that part. But the latter part is, they're coming after me because I fed them and they were filled. Now, how about the slaughterings? How about a woman being cut in 12 pieces? How about Israelites slaughtering other peoples and themselves? By God's command. How do we look at that? Let's look at humanity as a whole, as one spiritual body. This is something, in my perspective, a little bit more like how God actually sees humanity. I'm not going to go into the whole you know, explanation as to why. I'll just summon it up for the moment. We know very well in biological life, in our own biological lives, that if some foreign things come into our bodies that will only cause damage... Such a thing must be removed, killed. A cancer, for example. When God tells Abraham of what's going to come in the years later, when Israel has come to be a great nation and they're not in the promised land, they're in another land, and then they come back to the promised land, back to Canaan, he specifically tells Abraham that the iniquity of the Amorites has not reached its fullness yet. What's he really saying? The best sense that I can make out of that is God is telling Abraham that the Canaanites and the Amorites are going to continue sinning, but I'm still going to give them time. I think God does this regularly, by the way. He gives people who he knows in his omniscience are not going to turn 
He gives them time to repent. God never claimed that he treated, uh, treats us any less than fairly. But it's really difficult sometimes to see things from that kind of a perspective. By the time the Israelites are out of Egypt and they're ready to take out the Canaanites and Amorites, well, apparently, allegedly, based on God's words, their iniquity had reached its fullness. Going back to the spiritual body example. By that time, the Canaanites and Amorites were a cancer in my perspective, in my argument, on the overall overall whole body of human beings in general. The only thing that they could have done by this point is corrupt and contaminate and hurt the rest of the human body as a whole were they allowed to persist in their wickedness. Another similar example, Pharaoh himself. Read the scriptures in the in the in the book of Exodus. It points out that Pharaoh hardened his heart several times, right? As the plagues are continuing on and Pharaoh responds, he then hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then pay close attention to it. Suddenly, at one particular point, the wording flips and it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. If there's anybody who knows when an individual has gone gone beyond the point of no return, it's God. I think that at that point, Pharaoh's heart had gone beyond the point of no return. So instead of just letting Pharaoh harden his own heart, God gets involved and hardens Pharaoh's heart. If nothing more could be done to give Pharaoh a reasonable and fair opportunity to repent of his wrongs, the question beyond that point is, how then can God use Pharaoh for the Zoe, the spiritual life, of the rest of the world, particularly in this case, the Egyptians and the Israelites. As we read, if you read, if you read Exodus, there were some Egyptians that were actually for the Israelites. They might have gone on to have a relationship with God. Who knows? They might have even gone with the Israelites. Some of these details aren't said, but that doesn't mean they didn't happen. Aren't written, that is. From God's perspective, what activity or what allowance, what freedoms will he give that will be better for the spiritual life of people as a whole? What is God's interest? What are his, quote, loyalties? What is good from God's perspective? See, one of the problems that I have with a lot of these arguments, starting with the first one, if a being is not capable of evil, can he be considered good? God is good because he heals everybody. God is good because he's interested in defending the innocent and defending life and so on and so forth. And don't get me wrong, there are specific scriptures about God defending the innocent. But we put God into a human-sized box. We limit him to what we think is good. We don't ask the question, what really is good? If you could see from God's perspective, what is good? What really is good? It's a word that very few people have really contemplated. We use it on such a regular basis. And wrongly, by the way, I'm doing good. Oh, so you're acting morally? No, 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 I mean I'm feeling well. I'm a bit of a grammar Nazi. But one of the reasons why I have this as a pet peeve is because good is so much deeper and more powerful a term than so many people recognize. 
And the most powerful we can understand good is to try to see it from God's perspective. If you're a Christian, that's what you should be doing with good. What is God really interested in? His activities, his permissions, what are they aimed towards? Clearly, in some cases, they allow for bloodshed. It's a challenge. It's a massive challenge. And I don't blame skeptics for not really wanting to believe that a God like that is good. I'm not saying that I argue that they're right. I'm saying I can sympathize with that. Take, for example, if you're a person, excuse me, sold out to the interests of the world. Take a drink here. You want the benefit of the flesh. You want hedonism, you want pleasure, you want happiness. And then come in the Christians and tell you that you need to do this, this, and this, and you're wicked, leaving a wicked, leading a wicked life, and you need to abandon all of these things. Your interests are being directly opposed. That God is not going to appear to you to be good. Not in that moment. But similarly, if you think that an interest in biological life is top of the top of the top with God, as it is with mankind, and by the way, I think it should be with mankind. I think that it is a good, a good thing, but that's not necessarily God's perspective. But if you believe that it is, if you believe that God shares human perspective, of course you're going to have a very hard time when you take an honest look at what God has allowed to happen in the world. I don't mean to try to go into an entire exegesis, an entire explanation of all of these arguments. I'm just trying to give a quick glimpse, and maybe I'll go into it further sometime later. But now but let me deal with the first question. Can a being who is not capable of evil be considered good? The primary problem I find immediately with that argument is that you're assuming God on the level of a human being. You're assuming that God is essentially biological. And I don't mean that biological life brings in with it the capacity to do evil. But you're trying to put him in, such, in essentially the same category as a biological human life. What is evil? And again, we have to take this from a Christian perspective. If a skeptic is going to give us a fair shake, they have to take it from our perspective, not theirs. They have to see it through our eyes, just as we hopefully have just been doing for them. Evil, for a Christian, is anything that goes against God. Sin, at its core, is simply to walk away from God in your actions. It's anything that separates us further from relationship with him. The Bible says God is not flesh, he is spirit. And as I said earlier, he is the source of life itself. Source of energy, the source of all things that we know in this universe. From a Christian's perspective, for God to do evil or for God to sin is to be not himself. For example, let's take somebody with a very clear and obvious personality, somebody who's fairly charismatic, bombastic, 
maybe. But they're the kind of person that, you know, fills a room, not necessarily in a good sense, but they fill a room when they enter. All of us have met somebody like that, probably. They may do bad things. They may do good things. They may be friendly. They may not be so talkative at the moment. But whatever it is that they do or don't do, you don't think that there's really a problem with their core personality until they do something, if you know them well enough to know this, if they do something which is, as we call it, out of character. We assume that they can never do something that is opposed to their own core personality. Same is true of God. Now, however, there's a little bit of a, a little bit of an asterisk there. If God ever did that which was not God, what do you think would happen? We've just been talking about the fact that he's the source of existence. He's the source of life itself. If he went against himself, would all of reality fall into complete chaos? Would it blip out of existence? The reason why God cannot do evil is because God can't be not God. So how can we consider a being who can't do evil to be good by realizing that he's not human. By realizing that he doesn't dictate what is good, his very being is the essence of what is foundationally good from his perspective, not ours. So of course he will never go against it. Of course it's what he talks about. He's not giving us a prescription when he talks about what is morally good. He's telling us what it is like to be him within our limitations. Just as Christ once again exemplified for us. God is good is essentially the same as saying God is God and always is God. Now, you either believe that or you don't. If you're a skeptic, I'm not expecting you to accept that. But what I do want you to get, if you're a skeptic and you're listening to this, and hopefully the Christians as well really get this down, is that you have to see this first from a Christian perspective, and more importantly, at least hypothetically, conceive that God is really out there. He sees things from his perspective, not yours. And if he really is God, and he is the king of the entire universe and everything else outside of the universe, because it's the source of everything that is, then he is the definer of what good is. It is his own core character. Again, you can either accept that or you don't, but at least give us the benefit of seeing things from a Christian perspective and from God's perspective as much as that is possible. God is good means God is God. And he's not going to not be God. He's holding up the entire universe. Anyway, I hope this has been interesting for everybody, and for now I'm going to sign off. Have a great day.